The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear, came all, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. The word of the Lord. Morning, and Hope. It's, it's good to be with you this morning on the fourth Sunday of Advent as we continue to, to prepare our hearts for the celebration of, of Christmas, to celebrate Christ's first coming to us. And as the church, as the people of God, it's, it's the Word of God that calls and collects us. It's the Word of God that crafts and creates us as the people of of God. So before we, we turn to this text, let us turn to the word, turn to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear the promise of his gospel. God our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that you proclaim in it. We thank you for all of the promises that you have fulfilled in Jesus Christ and help us to hear and to know and to love that promise today. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
So uh, a number of, of years ago, I, I heard a man tell a story, and he, he described how late one night in high school, he and a few of his friends decided to drive a number of hours to the, to the coast in order to take in a beautiful beach sunrise the following morning. And the coast that he set out for was the coast of, of California. And at the time of the telling, I didn't think too much of that detail. It didn't strike me as particularly important. It didn't matter if he was heading out to Connecticut or California. But when they finally reached the beach, and instead of seeing the sun start its course over the ocean, they saw their shadows slowly stretching towards the sea. They, they looked out over the beach, they looked out over the water, and all they saw was darkness. Their, their plan had, had failed to calculate, to, to factor in the most important information, what a sunrise actually is. And, and no amount of wishful thinking is going to make the sun rise in the west. They were perfectly situated to take in a surely stunning beach sunset, but to, to, to look at a beautiful sunrise, continentally speaking, they could not have been further off course. And interestingly, the outburst of, of praise and prophecy that we find here from Zechariah actually uses the imagery of a sunrise. Zechariah speaks of the sunrise visiting the people of God. He says in verses 78 through 79, quote, The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this is powerful imagery. This is imagery that commands our attention to appreciate a sunrise, we, we must not only recognize that we are in darkness, that the night is upon us, but, but we also have to be looking in the right direction. To see the sunrise, we absolutely have to look to the east. And so to appreciate a sunrise, we must know that we are in darkness and we must know from where the light will come. And a promise... A promise is like a sunrise because a promise is something very specific. And in this prophecy, we find that God has made a promise to his people. God has committed himself to a very specific and very particular course of action. And so, in the same way that you can only see a sunrise by actually looking towards the east, God's promise, too, takes a very specific form. If we look to the wrong place, we're going to miss it. The light that Zechariah here speaks of is what God will do, not, that we, not what we think God should do. And Zechariah tells us that God promises us a very specific form of salvation. Zechariah tells us in verses 68 through 70, quote, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people.'" and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, and uh, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Zechariah is telling us that God has again and again spoken through his holy prophets, and he's promised his people 
salvation, a salvation from the line of David. But the word salvation can be thrown around a lot. What do we mean when we say the word salvation? Or more importantly, what is it that Zechariah and the prophets of God actually mean when they use the word salvation? Right? That, that can be a very loaded term. What is it that this salvation consists in? What direction are we supposed to look for the fulfillment of this promise? What is the east, so to speak? Well, Zechariah outlines three key components of this salvation. In verse 71, we find that this salvation promises, quote, that we should be saved from our enemies, saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us. In verses 74 through 75, we find what the rescue from, the, from our enemies actually results in. We're promised, quote, that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies, that we might serve God that we might serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And then we find a third point, because somehow all of this starts with the divinely appointed task given to John the Baptist, given to the son of Zechariah. And this is the task. And this is in verse 66, 76 and 77. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So if we take all of this together, we get a picture of what the salvation consists in. We might summarize what Zechariah is saying in the following way, that we are delivered from our enemies, we're delivered from our enemies, so that we can worship God in holiness, in righteousness, and without fear. There's the purpose and somehow this comes about by the forgiveness of sins. This, this is the promise. This is the east. This is the specific light for which we are meant to wait. This is the specific light for which we are meant to look. And if this is the light, then this also defines the darkness. Because strictly speaking, darkness is not a thing. What darkness is, is the absence of light. The sun rises and it gives us light during the day, but there's no counterpart to the sun that rises at night and gives us darkness. The night sky is a result of the absence of light. In the same way, the darkness in which we live, the darkness of which both Isaiah and Zechariah speak about is the absence of something. It's a lack of something. And we know it. We feel this lack. We know that something is missing. We know that we feel this deep restlessness and this deep sense of discontentment. And this darkness is the absence of the light that God has promised. Again, darkness is not a thing. It's a lack of a thing. And we are in the dark because we lack what it is that God has promised. And God promises what he promises. And that promise is specific. God promises what he promises, and he doesn't promise something else. And this promise alone is that which can fill the lack that we experience. C.S. Lewis is, is helpful here. He, he writes the following about this dynamic. Quote, God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. 
If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe ever can grow, then we must starve eternally. God promises what he promises, not something else. God gives what God gives and not something else. And so we can either take what God has given and offered to us, or we can starve. Lewis is saying those are our only two choices. So then we have to ask, okay, what is it that is actually offered? What is the light that expels the darkness? What is it that fills this lack, this absence that we feel, that we fill? Again, to summarize Zechariah's message, we are delivered from our enemies so that we can worship God in holiness and righteousness and without fear, and this comes about by the forgiveness of sins. And so this tells us many things, but one thing it tells us is that worshiping God is what we are for. Worshiping God is what we are made to do. That's the result and the purpose of this salvation. It's what fills our lack, and so worshiping God is what makes us fully human. The human in the full worship of God is like the acorn that has become the oak tree. The oak tree is the acorn being most itself, and the human worshiping God is the human being most itself. But to speak this way is to speak in terms of a kind of teleology, to say that each kind of thing has a specific and particular kind of perfection. The perfection of the acorn is the oak tree. It's not the cactus, it's not the flower, it's not the weed. It's this and it's not that. Yet to say that each particular thing has a certain kind of perfection, to say that we have to look to the east to see the sunrise, well, that's to place limits upon our humanity. We don't question the dietitian who prescribes a certain kind of diet for the sake of our physical health. We know that if we want physical health, then we just have to eat a certain kind of way as, as much as we might want to. We can't subsist on a steady diet of Oreos and, and milkshakes. We know that's just not going to work. Yet, we believe that this kind of dynamic only applies to our bodies and not our souls and not our humanity writ large. We can only feed our body certain things, but we can feed our soul whatever we want. And again, we are talking here about food for our souls. As Lewis warns, to quote him again, if we will not learn to eat the only food the universe grows, then we must starve eternally. The philosopher Charles, Tell Charles Taylor, he, uh, he gives a reason why We've, we've, as a culture, moved away from understanding things in terms of, of teleology, uh, understanding, be it the, the acorn or the human, in terms of particular kinds of perfections. And he says it's because if this is true, then it limits our possibilities, it limits our choices. And we as a culture tend to see freedom as a kind of lack of constraint. It's, it's a negative freedom. It's a freedom from this or a freedom from that. It's not a positive freedom for. Because when we think about the traditional conception of freedom, it is a freedom for. If the acorn gets sun and soil and water and air, then it's free to become an oak tree. If the musician practices scales and music theory, then the musician is free to write a symphony. 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 There we go. Um, if we follow the dietitian's advice, we are free to have physical health. And if we look to the east, we are free to see a beautiful sunset. 
And these realities should make us step back and question, what is it that our freedom is actually for? Charles Matthews, an ethicist at the University of Virginia, um, he makes an important point here. He writes the following, quote, The bare fact that we are free to choose is meaningless if what we choose can offer us no freedom or satisfaction. End quote. We have more choices than ever before. We can go to college and essentially study anything we choose. We have access to careers that are not limited by what our parents did. We can eat fresh tropical fruits in the middle of a cold Midwestern winter. We can stream limitless shows on our computer for an unlimited amount of time. We can work thousands of miles away from our company's headquarters thanks to things like Zoom. We can date or marry or divorce based on personal preferences or how someone makes us feel in the moment. We can cart our children to athletic practices at 3 p.m. and then transport them 30 miles away for music practice at 5 p.m. We can do things that 100 years ago were completely unfathomable. More and more constraints have been lifted. There's more and more possibilities than ever. We have more and more options to fill, to complete that lack that we feel than ever before. But as Matthews forces us to consider, the bare fact that we are free to choose is meaningless if what we choose can offer us no freedom or satisfaction. Are we more satisfied? Are we happier? Are we more content than those who came before us? Are all these possibilities and all of these choices actually making us more joyful people? We're free to do whatever we want, but we're not free from restlessness. We're not free to be satisfied. Instead, we're free to be restless, free to be discontent, isolated. This is not freedom. But again, God promises what he promises and not something else. Zechariah tells us that the ultimate freedom for the human is the freedom to worship God in holiness and without fear. This is what God gives. This is what God promises. This alone is the true food for our souls. What if a pharmacy had the largest selection of medications in the world, but it didn't actually have the one prescription that you needed? Would you go there? Absolutely not. That might strike you as narrow. It might strike you as overly limiting, but no more so than the gardener who plants an acorn in order to have an oak tree. We might call him narrow for not attempting to raise up a cactus or a rose bush from the acorn, but he would just look at us with only confusion. But what of this process? The acorn does not become an oak by its own resources, but by means of water, soil, sunlight, and, and air. In Simeon, when he speaks about the particularity of God's promise, he also gives us the means. Again, we are delivered from our enemies so that we can worship God in holiness and righteousness and without fear, and this comes about by the forgiveness of sins. Somehow we need both deliverance from our enemies and forgiveness of sins in order to be freed for the worship of God. 
The worship of God, worshiping, worshiping him without fear and righteousness, that's the purpose, but somehow being delivered from our enemies and being forgiven our sins is the means. And in the prophecy of, of Zechariah, we, we find him using the language of the Exodus. This is where God's people were freed from Egyptian slavery. And when we think about the Exodus, it, it's important to note that God does not just tell Pharaoh to let my people go. If, if all he said was let my people go, then, then God would be content with our modern notion of, of freedom. Yes, we've been let go, we've been freed from Egypt, but we have not been let go for anything in particular. Rather, we find a very different kind of command from God. Let my people go that they might worship me in the wilderness. As biblical scholar Esau Macaulay writes of the Exodus, quote, in that story, God acted to free a people from slavery, not as an end in itself, but so that the newly liberated people might testify to a different way of being human. They've been saved from Egypt for wilderness worship, not for wilderness wandering. And Zechariah tells us that this same, same pattern animates the promise that God is, not, is now fulfilling. He tells us, Quote, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah is telling us that we must experience a second exodus, a more profound exodus, the exodus to which the first exodus actually pointed. And like before, we need to be freed to worship, and to do that, we need to be freed from our enemies. This is the promise. And how is this to happen? Well, Zechariah tells us in verse 69, he says, quote, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now, to speak of the house of David is to speak of a king. David is that great and iconic king of Israel. And, and God promises to David that one of his sons will establish the house, the kingdom of David forever. But who is this king? Well, he's, he's the son of David. He's a great king. If we want to see the sunrise, we have to look to the east. If we want to see this promised one, well, we have to look to the house of David. And actually, while Zechariah is speaking, the people of God are under harsh Roman rule, and, and even worse, they are at the mercy of the terrible King Herod, the, the, the king that will come to, to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem in order to try to exterminate Christ, the newborn king. And eventually the son of Herod, Herod Antipas, will become king, and he will put John, the son of Zechariah, in prison. And sitting in prison, likely thinking on the words of his father, thinking about the Savior from the house of David who will rescue God's people from their enemies, this son, John the Baptist, will ask a question. We find this in Matthew 11. Looking around at what's happening, John will send his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? What's happening, John wonders. The one who was promised by the prophets and by my own father, the king who would rescue his people just as they were rescued from the Egyptians, that one the promised one would certainly overthrow Herod. 
And yet here I am rotting in a prison cell. John is certain that Herod and his henchmen are his enemies and so that they are the ones that are promised to be overthrown. And yet Jesus does not do this and eventually things get worse. John the Baptist is actually killed by Herod. Yet Christ assures John that he is the promised one. Because this promise, it's bigger than the defeat of Herod. If you remember, this promise goes back. It goes very far back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve disobey, God does two things in one action. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of bruising is a curse of defeat upon the serpent and a promise of hope to Adam and Eve. As Palmer Robertson says, quote, the deliverance of God's people always comes through the destruction of God's enemies, end quote. God's people are saved when God's enemies are defeated. God promised that Satan would be destroyed and that God's people would be saved. And Christ is this offspring promise to Adam and Eve. And Satan is this enemy. And this, this right here, is the ultimate exodus. And so the promise is not to defeat any particular group of people, be they Romans or Herodians or, or any particular group that we would be tempted to put inside that category. Rather, the promise is much bigger than that. It's to defeat the very source of evil, to defeat the one who led us into death, into sin, into temptation, into guilt. And how is this to happen? Well, remember again the message of Zechariah that we are delivered from our enemies so that we can worship God in holiness and righteousness and without fear, and this comes about by the forgiveness of sins. And so how does this come about? Well, it comes about in the most surprising of ways. Who would have thought the deliverance from our enemies by means of the forgiveness of sins? Well, just as an acorn needs water and sunlight and soil and air, in order for us to be fully human, in order for us to, to worship God, we need the forgiveness of sins. And this makes sense if we think of the goal of Satan, which is to separate us from God. He wants to lead us into sin and guilt, and he did that because he knows the perfect justice of God and the perfect righteousness of God cannot commune with the sinful and guilty humanity. Now we are those who demand God's wrath, and this alone is our most dire problem. Because of it, we are separated from our Creator, from our God, from the one who, can, the, the one who alone can fulfill the deepest desires of our restless hearts. But as Zechariah tells us in verse 78, we are saved, quote, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, from on high. We deserve his wrath, but he has saved us by his tender mercy. He is a good and gracious and gentle father. And how has he done this? Again, in the most surprising of ways. He's done this through Christ, through the promised one. Through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself through his tender 
mercy. Yet God has also upheld his perfect justice. His perfect justice is something that calls Herod to account. It calls Herod Antipas to account. It calls each and every one of us to account. It even calls John the Baptist to account. All of us fall fall short of this perfect standard of righteousness and justice. Yet Christ is the promised one. He is God the Son become human. He lived a perfect life of justice and righteousness. And on the, cross, on the cross, he took the wrath of God that we deserve for all the ways we fail to love God and neighbor. And so Satan's sting has disappeared. Satan is overthrown. Our enemy is defeated. Again, Satan sought to separate us from God, and so he led us into sin and guilt making us worthy of God's wrath. Yet in Christ, God has taken that wrath. Satan has been defeated. And with God, we are with God because he has reconciled us to himself in Christ, and now we are free to do the one most foundational thing necessary for our flourishing— We can worship God without fear and perfect righteousness and holiness. We have no fear of God's condemnation because Christ has taken that condemnation. And we worship in righteousness and holiness because Christ himself has given us his righteousness and holiness. And we receive all of this by faith, by believing this promise. And so now we can approach God in the assurance of love and the knowledge of his mercy, and this should elicit from our hearts the most sincere form of worship. And this alone is that for which we are meant. And you might complain, you might say, well, this seems rather narrow. This is a very specific what, a very specific kind of perfection when you think about what the human is for. And yes, it it is narrow in one sense. It's very specific, but in another sense, it is incredibly expansive. Think about it. If you asked a number of people what human flourishing consists in, you'd probably get answers like these. To have the job of your dreams. To have a storybook romance. To be financially secure and not to have to worry about the future. To get your kids into Ivy League schools to be free to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. But the irony here is that all of these options are incredibly exclusive. Few, if any of us, will ever attain this kind of salvation, if this is salvation. It's a salvation, it's a happiness of the elite. Few, very few of us will ever accomplish accomplish our dreams of professional success, of romance, of finances, of education, of parenting, of full and complete freedom, this will only ever be a possibility of a select few. However, if our deepest purpose, joy, satisfaction come from worshiping God, and this worship rests upon the forgiveness of sins that we receive by faith, Well, then this is a salvation that's open to absolutely everyone. So yes, in a sense, it's narrow, but in a much more important sense, it is incredibly expansive. Yes, the promise of God is specific, 
but it's a specific promise that's freely offered to each and every person. To see the sunrise, we have to look to the east, but everyone can look in the east. And in the same way, if we want our sins forgiven, we simply have to look to the east. We simply have to look to Christ. And so what's the promise of Advent? Well, it's the promise that we are delivered from our enemies so that we can worship God in holiness and righteousness and without fear, and this comes about by the forgiveness of sins. So in closing, I want us to think about the implications of this for our life. If our ultimate aim, end, purpose, joy, satisfaction rests in worshiping God, then this should affect all of our life. In response to this truth, the, the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he, he contends, therefore, that the whole aim of our life should be to, to learn, to love God, to learn to know God, to learn to enjoy God most and more deeply. If you're every day learning to love God more deeply, then this just is the criterion for a successful human life. If you ask yourself, have you succeeded in a particular situation? Well, if after what happened, you can honestly say that you've come to learn, if you've, come to, if you've come to love God and desire him more fully, then yes, you have succeeded. If you go to a job interview and you just completely nail it, and after you get that job, you think that this is not because of the kindness of God, but it's because of my own talent and my own resources, you are forgetting what Christ has saved you for. But if you go to a job interview and you completely blow it, you're rejected from the, God, from the job, but through the process you learn to love God more deeply and desire him more deeply, you are barreling down the path for God's intentions for humanity. You have succeeded. God promises what he promises, not something else, and what he promises is the greatest gift of all. In church, if you really knew, church, if I really knew how much else pales in comparison to God's gift of himself, how different would our lives be? God never promises us great jobs, marriage, a clean bill of health, a certain level of financial resources, or perfect family harmony. Again, God promises what he promises and not something else. If you desire these things, you desire a good thing. Pray for these things. And if you receive these things, thank God with gratefulness and gladness. But know that all of these pale in comparison to what God has promised us himself. And this does not mean that failing to receive these things is easy. John the Baptist, he desires to be free when he's under unjust imprisonment under Herod. He desires to be free and he desires a good thing. However, that is not what God promises us in this life. And this reality shook John's faith. He struggled. And we too can and we too will struggle. We will struggle when we lose that job, when that marriage we desire does not come, when we face infertility, when Family and friends hurt us deeply. And John struggled too. But John did something important with his struggle. He took it to Christ. And Christ does not rebuke John. 
Christ is gentle. He understands John's struggle and he welcomes his wrestling. And we are welcome to do the same. If you are struggling with the harsh realities of life, know that you are not rebuked by Christ. But also know that just as John shows us that we are meant to bring these struggles to Christ. We're not meant to sit on them or ignore them or simply vent to our friends about them. We are meant to bring them to Christ himself, just as John does. And here John did well. He grows in his faith. And we know that eventually John was executed. And this is a hard word, a very hard word, a word that we could not bear without the sweet word of the gospel. But even though John's imprisonment got worse, he became more fully human through it because he learned to love God more. And so what does this mean? It means that when we lose that job, when the marriage we desire does not come, when infertility holds back our desire for children, when our friends and family hurt us deeply, when all of these things happen and a million other harsh realities of life come upon us, if we have learned to love God more deeply, if we've learned to desire him more deeply, then in each of those situations, we have done well. God has promised us one thing himself. The whole course of our life is to learn how to receive this gift, to receive this promise more fully. And so ask yourself at the end of this day, do I love God more now than I did yesterday? Do I worship him more fully? Do I understand what I've been freed for? Am I preparing myself for enjoying God in heaven and in the resurrection that is to come? Christ has saved us from our sins and our enemies for the sake of this worship, for the sake of knowing and loving and enjoying God. Or to put it another way, Christ has saved us in order to make us properly human. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what you've promised. We thank you for the one thing that you've promised to know you, to love you, to enjoy you in worship. A worship made possible and worship received by the work of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.